Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Last year, I was interviewed by a platform called La Grace de Francois, which aims to bring awareness to and give a platform to both male and female survivors of sexual abuse and domestic abuse. In this episode, my special guest is the founder of that platform, Jackie Kibanza. Jackie was born originally to immigrant Congolese parents, but tragically, her mother died when she was a baby and she was fostered by a Dutch family in Holland, where she lived until she was 11 years old. After discussions with her Dutch foster family, they believed it was right for her to know her biological family and she then moved to the UK where she lived with her biological father until she moved out of home and went to university in Cambridge. Tragically, her biological father also died last year when she was 27 years old, so legally she is now an orphan. In this episode, we discuss that journey across Europe, her relationship with her identity and her foster parents and biological parents throughout her life and those periods of grief as well. When Jackie was in university, she was also diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and we discuss her struggles with it whilst managing her degree and the resilience she needed to complete her degree. In this episode, we also discuss this rollercoaster journey of life that Jackie has been on, what Le Grace de Francois has done for her and the guests she's interviewed, the special meaning behind its name and how male sexual abuse and domestic abuse survivors are coming more and more to the forefront. So this is how my check-in with Jackie Kibanza went. Jackie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. You've had the chance to interview me, so mm-hmm. now the tables have turned and I'm interviewing you. How are you, pal? Thank you for coming down to my flat in London. Thank you for having me. I'm very comfy. Excellent. <laughs> good to hear. Good to know. When we had our chat off air, I, to be honest, I wasn't expecting some of the things we spoke about to come up, so I'm really excited to discuss your journey the kind of roller coaster of life that you've gone through and also your amazing platform, La Grace de Francois. Mm-hmm. So without further delay, mm-hmm. are you ready to start the show? I am, let's go. Your platform, La Grace de Francois, is an absolutely amazing, powerful, such a much needed platform in this mental health space, Jackie. So let's start the podcast by talking about this and how and why you started it. So first of all, what inspired you to give it a go? Initially, it's... I started working within the field, so my job role is I'm an IDVA, and in general... What's an IDVA for the listeners who don't know what oh, it is? Oh, um, so it's an independent domestic violence advocate. So before I was working with adults, but now I'm predominantly working with young people and children, which I'm really enjoying, to be fair, because there's a big difference by the way they handle things and all that stuff. And when you say that, do you mean young people who have been witnesses to domestic abuse by their parents, or do you mean perhaps young people who have got into domestic abusive relationships both. themselves both okay yeah, literally both and it's quite interesting to see that they don't really have the same ideas of domestic abuse that adults do do you get what i mean so whether they're in a domestic abuse relationship or whether they're getting abused by their parent or any other family member they don't necessarily acknowledge it right away mm-hmm. so it's just that aspect of getting them to understand what's acceptable and what's not so i kind of felt like i wanted to do more obviously it was already my job role but i felt like within my community especially like the black or I would say ethnic minority, quote unquote, they don't really discuss it. It's kind of like hidden. Don't get me wrong. I know that within other cultures or just the British culture, it's still not something that people are going to be screaming Mm. about. However, I did feel like within my community, especially... There's an extra level. There's an extra level of shh, like don't even talk about it. Like Mm. Especially Congolese people. Mm. For myself, I'm Congolese. So I've seen it literally within my community that if something's happening at home, don't talk about it. Do you get where I'm coming from? Do you think that... I mean, I interviewed a guest who works in Democratic Republic of Congo and he's a war journalist and Mm. that episode will be coming out really soon. But do you think it links back to the idea that there's a lot of abuse happening in the Congo? There's a lot of civil war has been going on for decades 100 yeah. percent, and i think even back home i don't even think they acknowledge the best abuse that's not even a thing yeah do you get they're what trying I mean? to survive yeah aren't literally they? Yeah, that's yeah. not even a thing so they've brought that whole idea back here and obviously it's more the older generation i think but my generation now is more like 
okay you're understanding pushing those boundaries. Yeah, 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 yeah. this is yeah. not right and stuff like that but once again like i said i felt like i want to speak about it more domestic abuse in general and it kind of developed because literally at first i was just talking about domestic abuse this is that then i don't know what happened one day i felt like i actually want to talk to people because mm. i feel like as much as i can be promoting it a lot of people are doing that awareness and all of that stuff but i want to talk to people because there's people out there that literally they've got real experiences they've got real stories and i felt like if they're able to speak to me and other people are willing to listen to their stories someone that might be going through it or has gone through it already they might just feel that sense of they're not alone mm. and i feel like that's important because that sometimes opens up that pathway for people to be like i want to speak to someone or go to therapy or just feel just that feeling of oh i'm not the only person that's gone through this mm. like maybe i don't need to hide this do you get what i mean so yeah. that creates a pathway for healing do you mm. get what i mean so 100%. that's kind of how i started the actual like gdf diaries talk show before we go on to the really unique aspect of it which you've spoken to a lot of men and thanks mm. to you i was able to connect with micah great friend of the pod and i really loved his episode and having both those aspects mm. i just want to go back to the work that you do with children and, and young people mm-hmm, when it mm-hmm. comes to them being in domestic abusive mm. relationships so what have you seen when it comes to women domestic abuse? well i should say young girls mm. really and young boys what have you seen in how either young girls have domestically abused boys or young boys have domestically abused girls or even same-sex relationships what have you discovered about their education about their knowledge and, and how that's manifested I'm just thinking about all the cases I've had, right? Yeah. At the moment, a lot of them, as in the female cases I've got, the the women, a lot of them tend to be raped, sadly. Like, mm. But then they don't really see it as rape because it was with their boyfriend. So it's a thing where they'll say to me, oh, I didn't really want to have sex, but he kept nagging me, nagging me. And I just done it. And I'll tell him that it hurt, this, this, that. And I'll ask him to stop and he doesn't stop. Little things like that. Do you get what I mean? Ultimately, it's rape. I know there's a whole back and forth, this, this, that, sometimes online. But ultimately, that is rape. That's the reality. And sometimes it's, oh, a lot of, like, filming without consent, all of that stuff. And they'll mm. put it online, on Snapchat. All of that stuff is actually a whole back and forth. It's a whole it's so different hard. world, isn't it, now? I'm telling yeah. you. and it, it makes me feel really old, actually. I'm just mm. like... <laughs> well, social media's changed massively even in five years. <laughs> Literally, I'm like, what is now. going on? Yeah. For the boys that I've worked with, it's a lot of, like domestic abuse from their parents obviously i've had some that have experienced it in terms of like mom on son which just mm-hmm. makes me i just don't get it this world is just crazy yeah. but one i've been recently working with a little boy mom got into a new relationship and the boyfriend started abusing the son and obviously was abusing mom as well so he was becoming more an angry person so it was really hard to even get through to him because he felt like he should protect mom as well Mm. so he felt like he couldn't talk about what he was going through then he projects that at school and then they think he's a child oh yeah. yeah no and i was just trying to tell the school like just give him some time and it's really hard for them to really acknowledge sometimes the school because they see it as, oh, he's not doing well in school, he's not coming into class, he's not doing this, he's not... Then he's that bad person that's also always in isolation and that's affecting him. And it's really hard because sometimes things happen and you have to call social services. It's part of your job and you let them know. And that's the hard part because you just lose their trust just like that because mm. they feel like, why are you snitching on me? This exactly. is that. Yeah, With, that I thought I could tell you anything. That you had in Literally. Schools. I had that in school. And yeah, it's just yeah. like, oh, I thought I could trust you because of course we was having conversations and that's where sometimes I lose them because they're like, I don't really want to talk to you anymore. Mm. And that's the scary part because you don't know what's going on at home. What are the consequences afterwards as exactly. well when they withdraw from you? So yeah, yeah it's kind of like a cycle. Sometimes it's good and they actually acknowledge the issues and they get all the support that they need there's a lot of boys that have supported that need mental health support so because they'll say that they want to kill themselves or they've told me that they've tried and stuff like that and it's really hard because there's only so much you can do ultimately Mm. and right now the mental health services they're so overwhelmed i feel sorry for them and you put people on the waiting list and sometimes it's months that's the honest truth and by that time Exactly, sometimes mm-hmm. years, and by that time, so much has happened already, and they're like, well, I'm not going to get no support anyway, and it's like, what can you tell them? Like, yeah, you're on the waiting list, like, yeah. do you get what I mean? It's okay for someone to say, talk to someone, or reach out, but then what happens after that? Exactly. What happens if they can't get the help? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. so exactly. it's a whole roller coaster, really, and it's, it's really sad, definitely, like, I enjoy supporting young people, because I feel like they've got so much to give, and sometimes they're put in situations, I'm not saying adults are not put in situations, they can't help, but if you're literally, like, your mom or your dad is going through it and you are living with them, 
whatever they're going through, whatever they decide to do, you have to follow. Do you get what I mean? Mm. If they want to move, you move. If they move back, they move back. If they get back with that partner, you're not affected by that. So there's so much I feel like adults kind of forget. Like the young people and children are like the hidden victims. And that's why I'm so glad that children are now on the Domestic Abuse Act because before there wasn't and there wasn't seen as victims, really. I want to talk about the name itself because it has a very special meaning to you, Jackie. Mm. So tell the listeners why that is. So, La Grace de Françoise. So, my mum's name was Françoise. And in French, La Grace de Françoise means the grace of Françoise. So I've never known my mum. She passed away when I was really young. And then as I'm growing, people obviously tell me stories. And then I found out that my mum used to support young girls that were raped and assaulted back home. Yeah, she used to help all the orphans and everything. So I just felt like it was very fitting for what I was trying to do. Because obviously, ultimately, I'm trying to support both men and women. But those that have gone through some kind of abuse or assault or, yeah, sexual violence or, do you get what I mean, domestic abuse. So I felt like it was very fitting. And also just the peace sense of it, like grace, like I'm a Christian. So I just felt like it just brought that sense of peace. And whenever I do speak to people, I kind of always want them to feel comfortable, just a calm, peaceful vibe, do you get what I mean? Mm. So that's where that kind of stems from. And would you say that your platform is as much a gift to her and her legacy as it is to yourself and your career yeah basically because me talking to people is literally what i do for a living regardless as a career anyway so it's really not hard for me to do it and like you said it is a gift it's like for me to carry on her work, carry on yeah, her work yeah. in a way and also just for her to be remembered because she passed away so long ago sometimes i do get that feel that she's forgotten in a way and in reality she's brought six children into this world so yeah we mentioned earlier about Democratic Republic of Congo and you're very proud of your Congolese heritage and you spoke about the prevalence of domestic abuse and rape in Mm -hmm. the country so just tell the listeners a little bit of context that as you said that at one point it was the global capital of rape which is quite a stark statement yeah 100 percent and yeah at the beginning of when I started at Grasso I was doing a lot of research into what was going on there and so much was going on and I've forgotten his name Dr McGreezy I think Mm -hmm. that's his name from the Pansy Foundation and he supports victims from sexual violence, violence in general back home. And by back home, I mean Congo, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in my house. I just was intrigued about the fact that people literally get raped every day and it's a nothing thing. Like, I was it's reading about it. It's well. literally yeah. like, yeah. and it's a thing where they will make the children watch them rape their mom and mm. all that stuff and I was just I was just I was disgusted really but once again it's not a thing to them it's something that's actually still happening right now yeah but it's just because people are not really because it's been happening so long it's a nothing they, do you get they, what I mean they, they, they don't come care. normalized you get to it. it's horrible yeah, yeah and it's kind of like here with like knife crime we've kind of become used to it unfortunately that's the reality so bringing it back to the Congolese culture bringing it back here there's this thing that we call Kanga Matema, mm-hmm. and that kind of means like firmer in a way. So a lot of the time, the older generation, I would say, if, for example, your husband is beating you, let's say, and this, this, that, and you open up and say, this is happening, a lot of the older generation would tell you, you know what, firm it, like you have to go through hardships in sort life. Sort of get and, over it yeah, or like exactly. suck it up sort Yeah, it's of like, yeah. you know, you get tough times. But mm. there's levels to things that you need to accept, you get what I mean? And that's what I mean by that culture is very much still within our community. Maybe not to the extreme of... I don't know, actually, I'm not in everyone's household, but like rape and all of that, mm. like what's happening back there. But I'm saying like that mentality very much still among amongst us. So the things that are happening back home, I know there's a few women's refuges and stuff like that. And that's something I'm thinking about long term, maybe not right now, but I would love to go back home and start maybe like a refuge or mm. something like that. I know there's like millions of women that need to be safe, but I feel like if at least a few are supported, you get what I mean? And I know that they are. But I feel like with the resources and the knowledge and the wisdom that we have, there's so much that we can do back home. Mm. So Let's move on to the wider topic of domestic abuse now, mm-hmm. because you've given a platform to female survivors, mm-hmm. but you've also given a platform to male survivors mm-hmm. of domestic abuse and obviously your series is on sexual abuse, which we'll come on, to, come on to in a bit. So tell me why you wanted to do the latter with male victims of domestic abuse, because I can't think of many platforms that are currently giving a voice to men, despite the fact that, as we know, at least a third of men are victims of domestic abuse in the UK. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, when people think about domestic abuse in general, you think about women getting beat. And I realise, especially working within my field, there's a lot of male victims as well. And the thing is, not a lot of male victims report. If you look at the amount of male cases that I get, it's not that many. But I started realising it's because of the fact that they're very quickly judged already they're not seen yep. as a victim so 
when they report it's already a big step that they're reporting to the police or reporting or seeking help in general because they don't really want to maybe it's like a male thing or emasculation stigma shame and I just felt like it wasn't right for me to be all about being there for victims and speaking up for victims if Anna ignored that big part of victims. Yeah. Do you get what well, I mean? And, like... and some, very sadly, as we both know, some men who are victims of domestic abuse mm-hmm. will have accusations of domestic abuse by their abuser. So they yeah. might even be on it's, the register happens, erroneously. Yeah. Oh my God, that happens so much. Like sometimes we get two phone calls. So we get the abuser and we get the victim so let's say a situation where the woman's actually the abuser she'll also call up and say my husband is abusing me but he's already called up and said i'm getting abused so that's where sometimes it gets a bit tricky so we have to have intense conversations with both of them to actually see who the abuser is Mm. and sometimes it's very clear that yeah she's just trying to twist things around and make it look like she's the victim and and it's very difficult because ultimately many people are gonna believe her most of the time do you get what i mean and i just felt like it was time for men to have that platform as well speak their their stories and for the fact that for example michael yeah my friend like i didn't even know a lot of the things that he went through and Mm. i've been uni with him like i'll see him every day smiling kiki-keying with each other (laughs) and there was times that he told me stuff but not to that depth and obviously i'd like we just said, he probably might have felt ashamed. That's not something you want to talk about even with your friends. And and it just makes you feel like he must have felt so alone at times. You get what I mean? And once again, I'm literally here to bring that platform for people to realise, men at this point, like you're not alone. Mm. Like, for example, Jeremy, his story from when he was young, like he got molested, he got... Do you get what I mean? Mm. And it's just like... <laughs> Sadly, so many people go through that, and, and I how feel many like other boys are like out there exactly. suffering in silence. And you know, we spoke about Michael, and he's a big guy. You know, exactly. he's on job, he goes gym. He doesn't look like never... a stereotypical victim of domestic abuse in air quotes. Exactly. So, how many other men who are like that? That's your what brothers, I'm your cousins, your it, friends. Yeah, mm. and I genuinely want people to feel like you can speak up. Obviously, everyone will do it in their own time, but I genuinely just wanted men to feel like you matter too. I think that's why I actually wanted to let the world know that they matter too. I know this is whole battle of you know domestic violence and all of this is a gender crime and i really struggle with it because ultimately both gendered there is no gender go, abuse go, is, abuse has no gender it doesn't discriminate they does go it? through it like yeah. it's, it's hard it's really hard sometimes mm. but yeah how has your opinion changed on the topic by hearing these stories on both sides you know what funny enough i was talking to joseph about this and joseph your producer yeah the up, producer joseph. yeah, yeah. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> and i said that i've learned so much especially when it comes to trauma and mental health from men like I feel like you guys, I salute you guys. Because ultimately, when it comes to women, I know that we're quite emotional creatures. Stereotypically, of course. <laughs> Stereotypically, yeah, yeah. but I have accepted it a little bit. But <laughs> most of the time, if we are given that platform or that safe space to speak, we'll speak. But even with men, it takes you guys still kind of longer. Like the amount of interviews I've done, I feel like for the fact that Joseph is there, the producer, they feel a bit more comfortable. With, with the women, men? Yeah. yeah. With the woman that I've spoken to, that already well, you're already chatting. They're already hey, girl, there. Yeah, yeah, like, hey, yeah, girl, yeah, do, do, do. yeah. With the men, we need a bit of, more warming yeah, up. The ones stiff. who are saying it for the first time. <laughs> yeah. I was calm, but yeah, you was some calm. people need a bit more with warming up. With some of the people, I was just like, okay, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> but then Joseph will make like a joke and this is that and they start warming up. I can see them relaxing a bit and it's just that little thing of he creates Trust. that, yeah, he creates mm. that safe space for them. So I've learned to understand that it's harder for men to open up about sensitive stuff like that. Do you get what I mean? It is a big thing to talk about. They're being vulnerable at that mm. time. So they're letting the world see the real them at that point. So I don't know. Like, what have I learned? I've learned to be more understanding when it comes to men. I've learned that, yeah, in order for men to be vulnerable and open, they need to actually genuinely feel safe. A lot, of trust, safe. A lot of, trust. of trust. Yeah, and, and I'm so surprised about the amount of people that have been willing to speak to me because... When we first decided to speak to men, I said to Joseph, mate, we're going to get like two people. (laughs) It's going to be long. And usually we try and run it up until like September and then we take a little break. And we actually were able to do it. Like, I don't know how, but we were able to do it. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. And we're hoping to maybe at some point have men and women. I feel like it'll be an interesting conversation. A lot of like... Like both perspectives who have both been survivors and yeah. how they differ and yeah, yeah because yeah. I feel like that'll be an important and also a learning curve, a le- an important communi- communication conversation. Sorry, but then also a learning curve for both people because sometimes I feel like a woman will feel like, well, I'm more a victim than you, and a man a might feel hierarchy like of yeah, and a man yeah. might feel like they can't say certain things because yeah, they might they'll be, be belittled. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's something I feel like we need to break because mm. ultimately we're all. We've mm. all gone through stuff. 
one thing I found really interesting is when we were talking off air and you were discussing what are women's role in helping men articulate their voice when it comes to being domestic abused by a woman. Mm -hmm. So you said to me, you can talk to me, but can you really though? Mm. So what did you mean by that? When I say can you really though, because literally everyone, like my male friends, my cousins, my brother, I would say I'm here for you, like talk to me, this is that. But then ultimately, I don't know what they're thinking in terms of do you actually genuinely feel that safe space? Do you feel that you can trust me? Do you feel that I'm judging you while you're speaking to me? Was that a throwaway comment as well? They're here if you need anything. Because you say that to loads of people, don't you? I'm here for you, babe. Do you get what I mean? But genuinely, I feel like even in a relationship, maybe the person that you, your partner, whoever that might be, they need to feel that safe space in order for your relationship to work. And they need to know that they can trust you. And so when I say, like, I'm here for you, whoever's on the receiving end, I don't know if you genuinely know that I mean that. Do you get what I mean? Because I can say, well, we've had deep conversations now, mm-hmm. so you know that you can it's probably... It's easier for me, me now. Yeah. Come on, I've been but, doing this a long time. But <laughs> so, if I was just starting out, Exactly, whoa. you'd be like, oh, relax, bro. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you yeah, get yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Getting too deep. Come, but, come. <laughs> so it's like, I feel like a lot of people that I speak to, for example, clients, I'm genuinely there for them. In order for me to help them, they need to tell me exactly what they've been through. As a male, I don't think they'll open up right away personally so that's what i mean but like can they really though can they really speak to me and also if they feel like they can't what do i need to do in order for them to feel like you know so have you changed those everyday language conversations to reflect that then have you stopped saying i'm here if you need oh no i don't say that all the time to be fair it depends obviously what the situation is like if they need that reassurance that i am here for you i'll let them know but when it comes to especially my clients at work i'll tell them let's do it at your pace you don't have to tell me everything now or let's just go for a coffee. Let Build me get the disclosure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And over time, usually, they'll just start telling you without even asking. They'll be like, this happened. Mm. That happened. Or like, I haven't told the police this, but this happened. Do you get what I mean? Little things like Have you that. found them like almost testing the water? Like, especially with men, I, I would say. Have you found them like testing the water? So they'll give you a little bit, mm-hmm. see how you react. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they might give you a bit more after that. Yeah, especially when it comes to their mental health stuff or if they've done something like harm themselves. They, they wouldn't really tell me right away. But then later on, they'd be like, oh, yeah, the other day I'd done this. And I'm like, oh, you didn't tell me when I saw you last. And it's like, yeah, I didn't really want to tell you this, this, that. So slowly by slowly, they'll start open up. And sometimes it's like, oh, like it's quite a lot. But then you have to kind of still stay composed because I don't want to throw them off. Do you get what mm. I mean? And I always do have to tell them. If it's something extreme, I'll have to tell them, like, I'm going to have to obviously let this person know or that person know. It's just because of policies. Mm-hmm. Like, I just need to make sure you're safe. Yeah. Let's reflect then on this journey so far. So mm-hmm. first of all, what has been your proudest achievement doing La Grace de Francois so far? Oh, wow. You know what? We recently were nominated for a what's that called again a bfa award mm-hmm. we didn't make it through to the next round but i felt really proud that we were acknowledged like that we was even nominated because it's quite a big like charity this this that so i felt really proud then because at that moment i'll be honest there was moments that i couldn't be bothered anymore because it is a lot of work you can probably imagine like having to keep with the podcast doing that doing that, and you do all the editing and stuff i, like, I don't even do that that's jason sorry but Sometimes I can't be bothered, and at you that do the moment, you bounce. You yeah, cut after that straight away. I've got to go, mate. Have fun. And in that moment, I was going for a can I be bothered? I kind of wanted to stop it because it's so time consuming. Sometimes you can't bothered if you're not regular. We do it like we let an episode, we release an episode every month, and sometimes you can't bother because you have to do promotion, you have to do this, you have to do that, and it's just like I really couldn't be bothered whatsoever. And I also felt that that feeling of people don't really watch it but then you have moments that people come up to you and be like i'll be at like a party or just something random be like oh i've watched your episode it was silent really supporters, good mate. and it's just never like, underestimate the silent support yeah and it's just me. like oh my god you actually do watch it <laughs> <laughs> like people watch this and it's just like little things like that because that's what you want random people to actually watch it and take things in do you get what i mean there was one time i received a message and she was like i really needed this episode thank you so much for what you do it's little things like that that makes you feel like this mm. is what I want. I don't even need masses of people to come up to me and do this. Every now that. and then. It's yeah. just every now and then for someone that you've helped them or they needed this because that's what I need. I wanted that one person to feel like they're not alone. Do you get what mm. I mean? So that's when I feel like oh, this is actually, yeah, what I'm doing is all right. Do you get what I mean? And as a final question before we move on, what mm. has it taught you about yourself so far as well? Um, what has it taught me? That I love a chat. Um, <laughs> you knew that already, didn't you? <laughs> Why has it told me that I'm a very caring person? I've realised, especially when doing my job, that, and it's not a good thing, by the way, 
I really care. So if something's really happening, it's like I feel it. Like I feel the pain. Obviously, I can never feel exactly what the person is feeling, but it's like someone's talking to me exactly what they've just been through, and I feel it, and I just really want to help them. Do you get what mm. I mean? Like even when we were talking, I just feel like. Why did that happen to you? Like, why did you feel like that way? Like, do you get what I mean? It's like, I don't That's really good and know- bad sides, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. You, have to, you, don't, you can't let it consume you. You've exactly. got to be able to emotionally I detach. Can't bring, I've slowly learned how to not bring her work home because that was a problem really with me important. in the beginning because yeah. the whole weekend I'm worried about what's happening to that person. So I've learned that now. But yeah, I'm definitely a people's person and I feel like I've built up a lot of networks for me to communicate with different people, different people from different aspects of life. Do you get what I mean? So... Yeah, I don't know, like... That sounds like a good answer. Okay. We'll leave it there. All we'll right, leave okay. it there. <laughs> we talked all about Le Grace de Francois. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Jackie. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Jackie we meet here? All right, so early life. So as I mentioned previously, my mum passed away at a young age. So I never know my biological mum, let's just say that. Life story time. So obviously <laughs> I was born in the Congo. That's where all my siblings were born. Then me and my mum went to Belgium. That's where she passed away. She needed like help. And obviously in Congo, the medicines and all of that is not great. So that's why we went to Belgium. That's where she passed away. And I got fostered because there was no one really there to look after me. At that time, my dad was already in London because that was the plan for everyone to just meet in London and start up there. And obviously he was like a refugee, didn't really have the papers to come get me, ra-ta-ta. So I got fostered. My foster family is white. I love them very much. They fill me up. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I grew up with them and I moved here to London when I was 11, going to 12. So I started secondary school here. That's a big jump. Yeah, I was about Going to say. Going from French-speaking European country. French, Dutch mainly, to be Dutch, fair. Dutch, okay. Yeah. yeah. So we was in Belgium. Let's just say we was in Belgium. When I turned four, we moved to Holland. So, oh, okay. So yeah. I went from French to Dutch to English, basically. So moving here, it was hard. But then when I moved here, obviously I felt very sad because I was leaving everyone that I kind of knew. But when I say I felt very sad, it was more like I thought they didn't want me anymore if that makes sense. And it was really Your foster hard. family. Yeah, my foster yeah. family, because obviously I was aware that I was moving here. It wasn't that we so suddenly, they just dropped me and they kind of done it slowly. I came to visit my biological family. I'll note that that's one thing they never done. They never acted like, well, obviously. Or hid you, <laughs> yeah, hid you like, from them. Obviously, sort of thing, yeah, yeah, I know that you guys are white and I'm black, so obviously <laughs> you're not my parents. But <laughs> ultimately, it's not a thing where like they hid me from my family or they didn't want me to know my culture or anything like that. And now, as an adult, they actually told me the reason they wanted me to grow up with my biological family is because they wanted me to, me to know my culture. They wanted me to know my family, which makes sense as an adult. But How as, glad as are you child, now about I'm that happy. decision? It was yeah. the best decision. Like, do you get what I mean? Like, I'll be honest, when I met my siblings, that's the one thing. It's really weird how life is. Like, I didn't know my siblings all my life. Well, I knew them, but I didn't grow up with them. But when I moved here, it was like, we really clicked. Do you get what mm. I mean? Like, it wasn't like that awkwardness do you get what I mean some people are a bit like oh it's a bit awkward but it was just like I could feel that love from them like I'm not saying I didn't feel it from the rest of my family but I just felt that love from them but ultimately I did feel that sense of like oh wow they don't want me anymore like I can nearly say abandoned in a way but it was really weird it was really weird to articulate at that time but now I can say that I'd probably felt that sense of abandonment but I didn't really know how to deal with it so I just kept going that's kind of my I don't know how to say coping mechanism now when something happens in my life I just keep going it might not be healthy a lot of people will say don't do that but since I was young I just keep going when something happens even though it bothers me so moving on obviously as I've grown up yeah with my family I still see my foster family a lot so last year was it last year yeah it was last year the year's gone fast oh my days <laughs> my father so my dad my biological dad passed away due to covid and i feel like that was a big triggering point for me do you get what i mean in terms of people leaving me mm. i don't know if that makes sense it's that really abandonment weird. come back in a sense in a way yeah but once again the way i deal with things is to not acknowledge it Obviously, it's not that I can't, that I'm not acknowledging it because I was of age that I really understood what was going on. So that was last year. But I could feel myself struggling a lot. Like, I was really anxious. Like, 
I don't know. When I decided I needed to get therapy because it was just so you much. Couldn't comp- you couldn't, I couldn't compartmentalize yeah, it any literally, longer, Even when yeah. I talk about what I was thinking at the time, it's like I wasn't thinking. I felt like I was detached from my own body, but my body was here. Like It was really weird. You're sort of disassociating. That sounds what it sounds like. Yeah, but yeah. then I, w- like, I know what's going on, but I didn't really know what was going on and I couldn't really handle everything that was going on. But yeah, if you was to look at me, I looked really calm. I don't okay. know if that makes sense. I hear you. I just <laughs> want to go back quickly to that Sorry. sense, <laughs> your sense far. of identity, because mm-hmm. obviously your foster family are white, you are black, you're Congolese. Mm-hmm. And I always think back to there's a really, well, they kind of take the mick out of it a little bit. But there's a really funny scene in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where they mm-hmm. flash back to when they're living in like a, a smaller house and Carlton says, I want to be the president <laughs> of the United States. And Philip goes, oh, that's great, son. Uh, da, 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 and he goes and he goes I'm black and he's like he doesn't even like <laughs> it's, it's a joke like, because yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. the class element of it but how did they teach you about your own self-awareness about your Congolese heritage and about your culture whilst also imparting their own values on you I think what really helped was that they always tried to make sure that I was in contact with my family so even though my English was basically non-existent at that time <laughs> they'll be like make sure you're talking to your sister now and my sister will be like hi this is that la 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 pictures photos for example my hair my foster mom didn't know how to do black hair let's be real but then she started going to this lady this black lady the hair, hairdresser she'll take me to do her hair there and then she actually started learning how to do the oh, hair amazing. stuff like that yeah. so it's a little thing like that where she made me feel like okay this is the kind of hair and she made the like, effort yeah she yeah. really did took ages but <laughs> <laughs> whenever she told you me hair day, I'm she thinking, from oh zero. my god not hair day <laughs> like this is a long time but she really tried and little things like that and then funny enough both my biological and my foster dad they're pastors so my foster dad he used to travel a lot regardless like and one place he still really wants to go is congo but it's that thing of cultures is a big thing to them. They're not really ignorant people because of the fact that they've traveled a lot as mm. well. Do you get what I mean? So as much as they've installed their values and their culture in me, they never let me really forget my culture. And that's like once, like I said, that's the reason they actually wanted me to grow up. My they show you Congolese family. music or is that the limit? <laughs> no, that was kind of the limit. But I tell you like, when I very, very, very first came to meet my family and they came with me, obviously... And then obviously when we went to church and all that stuff, we started listening to the music. When we got home, we actually started listening to some of the music because we were like, it's kind of vibe, isn't it? Like, do you get what I mean? So it's little things like that. They really did want me to know who I am and where I came from. Do you get what I mean? Mm. So. so how did you get the best of both worlds then? So was it perhaps emotional resilience that you got from your foster parents, whereas your biological parents taught you something else? How did you straddle that balance? And how do you look back on it now? Are you almost glad that you've got those... I do. Like my foster parents are very much, I'll be honest, I think that's probably where I get my keep it pushing attitude mm. from because they're really like that. Like ultimately, me moving, I didn't want to in the moment because obviously I was thinking, you're leaving me. You guys are all I know. But they kind of like made me feel like you ain't got a choice. So keep it pushing. <laughs> do you get what I mean? They definitely have that emotion. I feel like my foster mom more than my foster dad, like that emotional resilience keep it going you've got this kind of thing and it, it was a big difference because you know from this whole white neighborhood to this <laughs> canning town no one said so obviously it was a big difference yeah. ultimately so it was a big culture shock in that moment but now come to think of it I appreciate it because I literally, I know both sides of the world, should I say. Do you get what I mean? And I feel like it's also made me grateful, but it's also, it's made me understand both sides. Do you get what I mean? Sometimes people are put in a situation when it comes to like the lower class or middle class. It's hard. Do you get what I mean? But mm. then I also understand how the higher class. I'm so, not saying they're wealthy, but they're, they're all right. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? So can you code switch now? Or can you see more clearly in regards to you don't judge people as much? Yeah, definitely don't judge people. Mm. 100%. So... I know you lost your dad, obviously, to COVID, but can you tell me about the relationship you had with him as a teenager when you came here? Because I understand that can be, or that must have been, incredibly difficult to start with because you didn't know him, basically. So Mm -hmm. how did you build that relationship and then going to live with him, essentially, as that teenager Mm -hmm. in those very difficult 11 to 16 Mm -hmm. sort of years? How did that go? Well... Like I said, we did do visits and he came to Holland a few times. So it wasn't like I moved there and I didn't know him whatsoever. Obviously, I knew he was my dad. He came to see me. I remember the very first time that I saw him, I was like seven. That's when I, I'll say seven, eight. I originally met my dad properly. And it was a bit weird because it's like he was hugging me tight. And obviously for him, it's like, yeah, his baby girl, his mm. youngest, da, 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 
haven't seen each other in years. But for me, it was just like this guy. Who's this guy? Like, yeah, do you get yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like this is a bit mad. But then once again, like I'm not a very kid. Like do you get what I mean? I'm not gonna get off me. It was just like <laughs> okay, just hug. Like do you get what I mean? And but to be fair, he had like loads of presents. You know, like if you give give a kid sweets, you're happy. Like I was like, oh, this is a field day. <laughs> That's like a good easy bribe. <laughs> do you yeah, get yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like it was good. It was a nice day. And obviously, once we moved in, once I moved in, should I say? It was different. Obviously, we didn't have a mum at home. I was used to having a mum, having that, like, if I want a little cuddle here and there, like, you know, mummy, do you get what I mean? We didn't have that. It was just him. So how did he play both roles? It was different. I feel like the emotional side wasn't there. And I don't blame him because, one, maybe it's part of our culture. They're not as, like, huggy, Open huggy. Like that, and he yeah. would even used to say to me sometimes, I know you want to just hug people. <laughs> do you get what I mean? He was like, he, could, he didn't even say hug, he'd be like, come behind me. I don't know why he thought that meant hug, but I know that's what he meant. But think of it. That's, that's actually so funny. Proper, like, you want to come behind me, come behind me. Then I'm thinking, like, At least he was trying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Trying. Like, he really did. Like, maybe and, it didn't but, come naturally to I know, him, yeah. And that's the thing. I noticed that when I'm back like with my foster parents, I'm much more cuddly. It's really weird. But then when I'm here, unless it's like my nieces and nephews, I'm not really cuddly. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because how we grew up, we don't really like come home and be like, hey, like mm. hug. No, but when I do that there, it's like, hey, and hug. It's really weird. It's like you're, you're but psychologically that, switched. Me and my siblings do that again. now. Yeah. yeah, like me and my siblings do really do that. And we start, we've started, especially I feel like because we've lost our dad and stuff, we start saying I love you more and stuff like that because yeah tomorrow is not promised ultimately mm. but yeah i feel like now we've become more like you know this hug and yeah love you and stuff like that tell me about when you got to university because you said to me that ironically that mm. was when the bond between you and your dad got better yeah. was it because you weren't on top of each other all the I time so. basically definitely like because obviously like you said like when you're a teenager like just always on my neck like do you get what i mean let me live <laughs> <laughs> let me live like ultimately and when yeah. i went to uni i feel like because i wasn't there and he was probably seeing me more as an adult the conversations were just more easier and he saw me like just not like a kid all the time do you get what i mean and it, that's what i'm saying it was quite sad i feel like that's when we actually really started talking more and checking in with each other and stuff like that and i feel like that's what we needed do you get what I mean? Mm. For our bond to grow. And I think that's why when he passed, I feel like it was really difficult. Because obviously we had our times that we have arguments and stuff like that. Still, like everyone has arguments or whatever. But I feel like as I got older, our bond started getting better. And I think it's probably like that for many people regardless. Like you start understanding your parents more. And I feel like as he's passed, I've learned so much more about him. And you know when like, you know, he's one of those people that love writing and stuff. And I found documents where he wrote about when he was coming to the UK and stuff like that. And you're just thinking... I started understanding that first generation, they really left all they knew and they came here and they tried to start a better life. Talk about but stuff we out ju- your zone literally, there, and yeah. we just see it as you're such an annoying dad. Like, <laughs> do you get what I mean? But they've done so much and we didn't realize that, obviously, because we're young. But now it's like, it's a shame that now I'm older and I'm starting to understand things better, that I don't have that chance to actually let him mm. know that I really appreciate it, everything he's done for us. Like, mm. But yeah, uni was something <laughs> that was something as well because i mentioned it didn't we off air so when my first year of uni was even like the first few months i wasn't feeling well it was literally a simple cold it wasn't that deep to be fair but i felt like let me be a very responsible adult and go to the gp and check out to check myself out and i remember having an alarm i've had it since i was 16 if i was honest but i'd never really thought of it because i i never really got sick but something just told me ask what that is so i asked about the alarm They'd done a few tests and they sent me to like the big main hospital in Cambridge because I went to Anglia Ruskin in Cambridge. My dad loves used to love to say she goes to Cambridge. I'm thinking, stop making me sound that like I'm smart like that. But you know, <laughs> let's run with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> but we went to the big hospital and I genuinely didn't think nothing of it. But everything was happening so fast and I remember sitting there and you know how these doctors love to use big words like. So we just want to let you know you've got it. And I was thinking, okay, like, I'll be honest. I had English, link. please. Like, yeah, I had yeah. a link that day as well. I was thinking, hurry up, mate. Like, do you get what I mean? I've got things to do today. And then the nurse clocked that I didn't really understand what they was talking about. Because I was by myself. I thought it was just a quick check-in to get results and I'm going. But she was, like, breaking it down that, like, you've got Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a type of cancer. And that's when I was like, what? Because my mom passed away. She had cancer results. I'm thinking, you know, you're like, why me? Like, what have I done in this world literally to deserve this? I know there's way more worse things in this world. I get it. But, but it's natural that you moment, to think that. It's natural. Yeah, I was just thinking, what? I was even speaking to my sister about this the other day. I'll be honest, that whole 
going to two years, so the first and second year of uni was a big blur kind of thing mm. because so after that everything was happening kind of fast. They were telling me to stop uni, go back home, da da da. da. I said, no, mate, that's actually not going to happen. Your foster parent's resilience kicking <laughs> like, in, Yeah, that it's not happening yeah, yeah. because I'm the kind of person, literally, I need to keep going. If I go home and stop everything that's happening in my life, I'm going to feel worse. worse, literally. So they made arrangements to make sure I could stay in uni and get my treatments and everything. And What toll did that take on your mental health? And I guess your academic progress. Yeah, so... I was a little bit behind, but surprisingly, I wasn't that behind. To be fair, that there's times that I wouldn't be able to complete my assignments on time because I was too weak. I was in hospital, this, this, that. But ultimately, I still graduated with everyone else. So that's a proud moment in my life. I was still like, I still did this. But yeah, like it was like the chemotherapy, going in and out of hospital. There was a time that I spent a few weeks in hospital. To be fair, I'll be honest, I think that was my own fault because like I said, I, I still wanted to feel like I was part of it. And I don't know if you know Barfest. <laughs> it was like one of these big rays, yeah. And I had no business there, I tell you that. But I just felt like everyone's going. <laughs> Is it like the pub crawl? The yeah, bar crawls? yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I, I had t-shirts of different <laughs> yeah. ones in Sussex. That yeah, is yeah, it, yeah. that is it. And I was thinking everyone's going and reality I was quite weak I had chemotherapy you know the ones but I was thinking I really want to go like shouldn't have gone because after a week later I was in hospital mash up. because I was yeah. like I couldn't drink regardless it was just probably being outside for that long and just dehydration yeah I, sh- I should have been resting sleep, do you know what I mean yeah. after chemo you need to be resting but my ass eh? <laughs> my ass wanted to be outside so <laughs> next thing I was in hospital so that was kind of self-inflicted should be people but... say, you should be inside not outside right now <laughs> I know but it was a really a learning curve and it kind of unlocked different levels of my faith it unlocked different levels of the, my strength How my so? mental strength because I felt like there was moments that I felt like there's literally no one else for me that could help me but God. Do you get what I mean? There was times that I couldn't even walk up the stairs. I was in my accommodation by myself. So did it I, make you question your faith? It strengthened it? Yeah, it strengthened it. Because there was times, don't get me wrong. Okay, this time it strengthened it. When my dad passed, I questioned it. It's really weird. Because when my dad was sick, he was in a coma for a while before he actually passed away. So we were all praying, this, is that. And you have so much faith that God's going to do this. Because my dad was a strong guy. Do you get what I mean? So I genuinely thought with all my heart, he's going to wake up. It's calm. But then he didn't. So there was a period of time that I was like, God, where was you? What's the point of me praying because it didn't work? All of that. We prayed for like a month. Like it was just... But then when I was sick, because I remember sitting this literally vividly, sitting on the stairs and I couldn't get up the stairs and I was thinking, how am I going to get up the stairs? There was no one there. Like, I was feeling so weak. It was like right after chemotherapy. And I just sat on those stairs and I said, God, it's only you that's going to get me up those stairs because I was so tired and I was crying. And in that moment, I just felt like, what's the point of even being alive? Like, if I'm going to just feel so weak and all of that stuff. And once again, I'm not, I wasn't that kind of person to now call someone up and be like, oh, I need help, because I had to fight my way to stay in uni. Do you get what I mean? So I didn't want to call anyone for help. Do you get what I mean? But then I'd done it. It just took me a while to get up the stairs, <laughs> but I'd done it. Do you get what I mean? I, I just breaks like, in between. <laughs> first step, fifth step. Literally yeah. <laughs> dragging myself up the stairs, but I'd done it and it just made me feel like, you know what, I just need to trust God. And within like two years, basically, the cancer started clearing, basically, because it was in my neck, basically spreading to like my shoulder area. And it started clearing. So I just felt like no one else is doing this. Fair enough, yes, the medicines and all of that, I know that. But I just felt like it was the faith and the fact that a lot of people didn't know that I was sick. Like, obviously, I was wearing wigs and stuff like that. And that was a big part of me as well that made me very insecure because, obviously, I went bold and everything. And the only thing people realised that I was getting very skinny because I didn't have no appetite. And I don't know what people thought, to be fair. But I I told my close friends and my family. But besides that, it's only after uni I started telling people, oh, if people asked when I was putting on my waist because yeah, I was sick before and they were like, what? You were sick? Mm. And I'll tell them because I was fine with telling them. In the moment, I felt like if I said it, people would start pitying me. Start checking. Making me feel like, like, over, yeah, 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 I get Because you. it was past. When you get so many like, messages, you've got to say the same yeah, thing over and over again. I just again. didn't this want to talk shit about Shit news it. repetition, I call yeah, it. Exactly yeah, exactly that. And I was just like, nah. So I feel like it definitely strengthened my faith, my own faith, because obviously many of the times when people are Christians, it's because of your parents. Ultimately, yeah, I became a Christian. I'll say I was a Christian because, yeah, my whole family is Christian. But I feel like in that moment, I felt like my faith and my belief is because of my personal experience. This is what I believe. You weren't just... Yeah. Uh, you were now... Well, you were obviously practising, but it wasn't like you were I a Christian. I felt yeah. like, yeah, 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 do you get what yeah. I mean? But then I felt like that intimate moment of God is God is doing this for me and ra-ta-ta. But then obviously there was two sides to it. Like I said earlier with my dad and 
he passed away there was a time that i couldn't pray because obviously there's that whole thing like yeah like he's in a better place yes i know that but why did he have to go do you get what i mean like no it doesn't make yeah, sense we've been, praying. A... we've been praying for this and it didn't happen like i was very angry and over time that's a misplaced more... saying isn't it he's gone to a better place like no the better place was here like, why is he gone with yeah, us do you yeah, get what yeah. I mean? but over time the faith came back and i think it's more peace peace came back and i think that's very important especially for once again your mental health and therapy helped as well i know loads of people look down on it but I know that I needed therapy in order for me to kind of function the way Jackie functions, because I wasn't feeling like myself for a long time. And you know, I recommend everyone to get therapy. <laughs> before I wasn't sure because I had never tried it before, but now I'm like, yeah, mm. do it. <laughs> There's an interesting dynamic and alternate reality here where you could have stayed with your foster parents mm. and you might have never known your biological father you might never learn your biological siblings mm. properly obviously you knew of yeah, them, yeah, but yeah. not properly so in that alternate reality if you had found out he had died you would have had that feeling that i guess you have when a distant relative dies you're sad mm. for maybe a couple of days mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. you kind of get over it quite quickly yeah, do you ever think about that i think about i do but it's hard as well but then the way i can actually think about it is with my mom because obviously she passed away and I didn't know her. So my sadness now is weird. Now, as I'm getting older, I think it's hurting more because I really would have loved to know mm. my mum. When I was younger and it'd be like her birthday or her death anniversary or anything like that, it was kind of like, sad moment, just keep pushing. Sounds savage, but I didn't know you. You're a child. <laughs> you, you get you, what I mean? You step like, into the pool of grief and you jump out <laughs> you of it you get what I mean? Quickly. I'm out, yeah. like, okay, yeah, I don't have a mum. Let's keep pushing. That's actually mm. how it was. But now, as I'm getting older, and even though she's not here, I'm getting to know her more, and especially because I'm doing the glass de Francoise, it's just more emotions to it. But yeah, like you said, like, it would have been weird if I was literally, I grew up with my foster parents completely, and I just knew of my biological family. It would have been very, everything would have been very different. My life would have been very different. Me as a person that would have butterfly effect. literally exactly. would have been very different. Mm. As you've navigated this period of grief when it comes to your biological dad, mm-hmm. you said it's the little things which trigger your mm. grief. So is it like you said when he talked about not liking hugs as much and stuff like that? Yeah. Or is it other sort of bigger things or bigger milestones? Well, I've realised one of my biggest trigger is hearing his voice because he was in France a lot. Even at the time that he passed, he was in France. So we used to talk more than actually see each other, weirdly. Yeah, have you got like voice notes of him and stuff? Is yeah, it like, like that? or yeah. even like, like he done it, he done man not to speak, probably where I get it from. But like videos or whatever, I really struggle to listen to that. Or like his favorite songs, like in church, it'll hit me randomly. But then something like, I remember, yeah, when my brother, our oldest brother told us that he passed, once again, that whole detachment thing happened like, Everyone else around me was like screaming, duh, 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 duh. and obviously everyone has their own way of reacting to things. But I was literally like, Whew. it was like my world stopped and like my body was kind of outside my body and I could see everything that was happening. That's how I knew everyone was going mad. But I was just, and the weirdest thing that day, I could already feel something was wrong. It's really weird. That whole day was weird. And before I even got to the house, because I was out with my sister weirdly. And my brother kept calling me saying, come to the house. We need to do, 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 do. But you know when you already know? I already mm. knew. So when he said it, it's like I knew. But I, your I heart knew. sinks. It sinks, yeah. but I knew it. Because I didn't want it to be true. Do you get what I'm saying? Obviously. like. So yeah, it's like I had that detachment moment. And then I remember my brother said he's going to France. Because obviously he needs to sort out the body to come here. Do, 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 do. And my other brother was meant to go with him. But he was kind of in my And someone told me just go with him. Because my older brother is kind of like me. He's like quite resilient but i know that he has this breaking point and which he did ultimately like so i think i was on the train i I noticed that he cried i left him because obviously he needed his time but i just didn't want him to be alone so i do this thing where like try and keep everyone together you go on autopilot and you try and hold people together yeah the little things that's what i mean something will happen Mm. it'll break me do you get what i mean yeah you're now this successful adult Jackie, you found this amazing Ooh, platform. Successful, you've given you hundred percent, hundred percent. You big up yourself. You've given people who've previously felt, let's be honest, voiceless mm. a voice. Mm-hmm. If your mum or your dad were listening to this podcast, and I'm sure they are somewhere, what do you think you would say to them, and what do you think they would say to you? I would say, I really hope I'm doing them proud. And I'll be honest, I think I would be. Because I remember the very first episode of GDF Diaries, I actually sent it to my dad. And I was telling him exactly what I was planning to do. And 
everyone to get emotional, but I'm so happy that I've done that. It's a safe space. You can be emotional. <laughs> Don't get me started. But I'm so happy that I've done that because he actually literally said, I'm so proud of what you're doing. And I think that's what keeps me going. Like when I said I had moments of, I can't be bothered with it anymore. I just remembered that conversation with him. And he was the one that was telling me more about my mom. She was doing this. This is what she started. I remember him saying, you need to finish it off. I said, I will one day. Let me just start this first. All right, like calm down. But I was so proud. I even remember saying to him, oh, I love you. Like that conversation will forever be in my heart. And I think that's what encourages me. In terms of my mom, once again, like I really hope that she's proud because obviously I'd done it in her name because I felt like she wasn't valued enough. Like she literally brought children into this world, but she passed so long ago. Sometimes I do feel like my family forgets about her. Not my siblings and I, but like the rest. Do you get what I mean? Where do you guys think we came from? So it's like, I really do hope that they are proud and yeah. Mm, I think they are. I think they are, pal. As a final question then, Mm -hmm. what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that 11-year-old Jackie who had just moved to the UK, had no idea what was going on, Mm -hmm. wrongly thinking her foster parents didn't want her, perhaps the 19-year-old Jackie who had just been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, or perhaps the 25, 26-year-old Jackie who had just lost her biological dad. What would you say to her, knowing what you do now? The 11-year-old me? What would I say to me? I would tell myself that I'm loved. I knew that my foster parents loved me, but I was very confused as to how someone that you love, so me, how you can just leave me. So I'd remind myself that I'm loved, but it's because they want me to know my parents. I wish maybe that they explained that to me, but maybe they felt like I wouldn't have understood. God knows, I don't understand, but... I would have reminded myself that I am loved and they're not leaving me because they don't love me because that's how I saw it. The 18-year-old me, I would say everything happens for a reason. I don't know what the reason is. I don't think... (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you're cursing your reason, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I will never know what the reason is, but I would applaud myself because it was a hard time. Like, I was literally just starting my adult, quote-unquote, adult life and it was meant to be the best few years of my life. And I'll be honest, the first... One and a half year was very difficult because I started uni thinking this is going to be a great ride and it became very shitty at the beginning. It was great at the end because I started getting better, but I would say that I was actually, like, you're strong. That's when I realised how strong I was mentally. Obviously, yes, I've had my breaking point, but I realised that I was very strong mentally to just keep pushing because I didn't stop, I didn't finish uni and, I mean, I didn't stop with uni. I kept going regardless of the fact that I had to do go for chemotherapy cycles and all that stuff. And a lot has to do with my faith, a lot has to do with the support that I had around me because it wasn't for the fact that my close friends and my family was the way that they was. And I told them I don't want no pity all the time because that's going to make it worse. And they kept to that and that's what helped me. So I appreciate all those people. So that's when, when I actually learned that I value friends and I value family very much because... Without it, what's the point? Do you get what I mean? And then to my... I was 27, actually. Okay. 27-year-old <laughs> me, when I feel like my mental health was kind of spiralling, <laughs> I would say it's okay not to be okay. Because, like I said, I always feel the need to kind of be strong. And I think that's that resilience that's kind of built in me. So when I'm not, I don't feel strong, it's hard for me because... What? <laughs> what is that mm. feeling? Do you get what I mean? But I would say it's okay not to be okay. And yes, there was times that I was kind of losing my faith because of the fact that I expected my dad to pull through. But then he didn't. And life is life. You know, maybe it was his time to go in. That's not something you want to accept. Do you get what I mean? That it's someone's time. and Because he wasn't even 60. Do you get what I mean? So it was like, what? But then it's also a learning curve in terms of that tomorrow is not promised. Be nice. Be kind to people. Love the people that you love. Like, let them know that you love them. Don't only bring them flowers because they're dead. Bring them flowers on the day that they're here for you. Do you get what I mean? So, yeah, I've just learned that mentally it's important to give yourself rest days, a.k.a. that's something I don't really do. I'm always on the go. But now, when I tell myself this is your day off, if someone's asking me what you're doing, nothing okay, can you do this? No, but um, my day is nothing. <laughs> do you get what I mean? I need to set boundaries. That's one thing I've learned. That's to do with my mental health. Sometimes I feel like I allow people to push my boundaries because I love them, but I'm important as well. We have come to our final topic of conversation on your podcast, Jackie. Mm-hmm. And it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and a chat about our mental health. So firstly... How is your mental health? I feel like at the moment I'm doing well. Like I said, I was doing therapy. 
I've just finished and I feel like I've found different ways of dealing with just how I feel. If I feel like I'm not okay, then I'm not okay that day and it's okay. That's one thing I've really learned because before I felt like if, if I'm not feeling myself or whatever, if I've got things to do, keep it pushing. But if I genuinely, like now I'm just like, if I'm not feeling today, I'm not feeling today. If I don't want to do something, I don't want to do it. Like I'm really trying to stick to the boundaries. So mentally, I would say right now I'm doing very well. Good stuff. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Hmm, hmm, hmm. I'm trying to pinpoint, sorry. That's all right, I'm staring at you, this blank stare right now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I became more aware when I was 18. However, I don't think I was really able to articulate everything I was feeling at that time. I would say, probably, sadly, from last year, roughly 27, that's when I started realising, like, no, mentally, I'm not okay. You know when you just don't feel like yourself? Like, this was before my dad passed, actually. Little things would happen, and I'm just, like, getting anxious. I never used to have some kind of anxiety, but I started feeling, I could feel something would happen, and my heart is beating, or I can't breathe. That's when I started noticing the physical effect of my mental. And something that's not even happened yet, but my brain is already, like going five miles an hour it doesn't make sense so I kind of started realizing that about myself and obviously once my dad passed I really realized like this is not okay like I understood that I'm anxious about a lot of things that I don't need to be anxious about even now it's really weird I don't really know how to explain it but I've got this thing about time so for example we agreed for like 11 o'clock I was at home around no last night I was already thinking like what time do I need to wake up (laughs) and it's really bad because then I'll wake up and I'm like got one more hour to sleep because I have to it's like I get anxious about little things like meetings but not rushing not in a bad that's one of my big triggers rushing yeah and it's not a bad thing but it's also like I don't want to feel like that all the time do you get what I mean so that's once I'm trying to work on like relax like I was on time like do you get what I mean like do you get what I mean but I'll feel anxious about that but even things that haven't even happened yet or that might not even happen I'll be anxious about it so I've become really aware of that since last year but then since therapy my therapist she really helped me understand that it might just be because of the fact that I've always kind of felt like I just need to not be perfect but in a way be on point because on job yeah on job yeah. in general the, like, you can't be on job all the time I know it's I really impossible <laughs> I know but then so yeah it's just a lot of things like she said they might link to like an identity crisis once again because of the two families that I have she might feel like the fear of abandonment so I want to be perfect or whatever stuff like that so there's a the lot of things that I'm yeah. a people pleasing oh, recovery I know the I know no, the feeling I definitely am and I've acknowledged that so that's why it's like sometimes say no and it's okay to say no without even explaining it because yeah. sometimes yeah I was that person that would be like I'll say no and I have to explain why I'm saying no but no I don't need to explain myself but it's still a journey because sometimes I'm and like and if they make you try that's on them yeah exactly tell them to fuck off so yeah. it's just, there's a lot that I feel like in this last year I've unfolded and I've understood about myself so yeah I feel like yeah 18 I've understood that okay mentally the sign going on sometimes like mm. I don't really get it but we move then from last year I started understanding okay this is not okay. Tell me then about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What did you say? And at the time, did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, as some guests have told me, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I would say maybe probably my sister, Colette. Shout out Colette. Shout out Colette, okay. We're the two youngest, so we're quite close regardless. I'm close with all my siblings. That's one thing about us, we're quite close in it. But you know, like, we talk about everything, like, boys, this, that, so, they're huge. <laughs> so, it's like, with her, it's just like, we're easy, we bounce off each other, so... We'll the vibe's that. there. Yeah, the vibe yeah. is there, obviously. But it's there with everyone. Don't worry, Sibs, I love you all. <laughs> but I think... Don't get cancelled by now. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> come home to bed. <laughs> messages, like... What did you say? <laughs> but I can't remember the conversation. It was probably a while back, but just how we felt in general... I can't remember the initial conversation, but I know we just spoke about how we feel sometimes. Do you get what I mean? And I think that conversation was helpful because we felt quite similar in terms of like, sometimes we feel quite forgotten, if that makes sense, in terms of like our family. Like we do quite a lot. I'll be honest. Big of me. You've you got that go, younger sibling we do that, syndrome. We there, do yeah. that a lot. We do quite. What do you mean? <laughs> you're, you're either the spoiled one or the one that you have, or the one that's always got their back up. I'm middle child, so I've always got my back oh, up. Well, she's a middle child. She's yeah. all right. But yeah, I just felt like sometimes you just have those conversations, and then you realise that you're not alone in it. 
and then just obviously she's always been there so like when i was sick like when i had she's the one that cut my hair because it was falling out so just moments like that and obviously the hard moments do you get what i mean that she's she's had to witness obviously i've gone through it mm. but sometimes i put myself in her spot and it's like she's had to see that she's had to do it for me like stuff like that so was it's it, quite yeah was it one of those moments of like nothing needed to be said but mm. the power it was, it was, was there. silent yeah. and my older sister was there as well I was at my older sister's house and we just cried all three of us i was crying because i was bald as hell <laughs> and obviously they was crying because they knew that it was hard for me like hair is a girl's mm. world do you get what i mean so it's just little things like that and obviously they respected that I didn't really want to talk about it too tough. But then when I do want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. So it's yeah. that safe space once again. Do you get what I mean? So, yeah, I think it was definitely, I feel like, yeah, my adult, when I'm at the beginning of my adulthood, I would say, is when I really started to have ghost conversations about how I'm feeling and stuff like that. But as I'm getting older now, we have more of that because we've acknowledged that mental health is a big thing. Even for my brothers, like when my dad passed i feel like it was easier for us to be like yeah we need to get therapy <laughs> like this is too much then them was kind of like oh yeah we should get therapy shouldn't we like yeah bro you do or at least try it like, maybe it might not work like, but at least yeah, try like, it yeah because once again male feel like they need to be that strong figure all the time but it's a hard thing like do you get what i mean to get through and ultimately we really think about it, we're orphans now so <laughs> it's a mad thing do you get mm. what i mean so you've only got each other now yeah literally yeah. so yeah, the conversations now, we talk about it. And <laughs> one time, my brother came in the group chat. He said, hi, guys, how are you? Oh, no, I think he called us or something like that. And then no one picked up. And he was like, I was just checking on you guys. We don't always have to call each other only if something happens. And it's true. A lot of the time, we just talk to someone quickly if something happens or you need something. But sometimes just checking on people. Do you get what I mean? Like, hey, how are you? How's your mental health? <laughs> how are you actually really doing? Do you get what I mean? It's important. And building on that then, I told you a little bit about my triggers, but what are the, some of the things that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, mm. or have you not figured all of them out yet? Mm. Before, uh, it's hard. I'm trying to think. I think one trigger I had before, like if I see something that reminds me of something, or like, yeah, like I said, my dad's voice little things like that i find it really difficult sometimes people post like little clips or whatever of him i'll just be scrolling past because i don't want to hear it like (laughs) at the moment but sometimes if i feel like jackie it's okay to feel sad and grieve for a minute Mm. i'll watch a video but i find it so hard because that's literally i'm going off like hearing his voice so that's a big do you think you'll get to a stage where you can just watch it and enjoy it i would love to i would love to but i just don't think i'm not yet yet. yeah you could yeah be optimistic yeah (laughs) i could at some point and then also tell me then, I know you've talked about the triggers then and some of the negative things which impact your mental health. So what have been some of the positive tools and methods you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you tried? I also like to ask guests which ones that you've tried but haven't worked. I would say the ones that I've tried to improve my mental health. Well, one thing, like I said, it's not really good but to keep going. I feel like for me, it genuinely works. However, I've adjusted it. I've also told myself, it's actually, I keep saying it, but it's okay to not be okay. Because before, I'll just be like, going, going, yeah. going. I don't want to think. I think that's what it is. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to feel anything. Let me out of sight, out of mind. Literally. Mm. But now it's like, I'll feel it, but I don't want to dwell in that moment, that black hole. You don't want to swim in it. Yeah. yeah. I'll pull myself out and then I keep going. So that if that means going to meet my friend, going to do this, just to stay busy, I'll do it. Some people feel like that's not really good. You need to really. Well, that sounds like a, a healthy approach for you now because you're acknowledging that there are days when I've you might need it. to yeah, swim exactly. briefly, but you can't swim for too long in that mm-hmm. because it's just going to make you feel worse. You'll that's drown. It. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, mm. but it doesn't exclusively have to be. For me, the Bible. I was gonna say, oh, I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what, right? I haven't read the whole Bible, but especially in hard times, for me, there's always something for a situation. So it's like encouraging. Do you get what I mean? Like, there's always encouraging words. The book of Proverbs is like encouraging all the time. And yeah, for me, it's the Bible, ultimately. Okay. I'm gonna add a new question in here that I've just thought about. Ooh. So if there was a mantra mm. to sum up your life, and your mental health, what would it be? <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> Apt. Apt. Okay. Expand on that at all or just that? We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. I'm going to think of one and get okay. back to you there. All right. No worries. <laughs> I'll no message worries. you. Free every morning. <laughs> yeah, free. I found it. <laughs> 
I've got one more question left, Jackie, mm-hmm. and this is another broad one. Mm-hmm. So what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all mm-hmm. walks of life, feel comfortable and feel safe in opening up about the mental health issues or just their general mental health, mm. if, most importantly, they want to do it. Funny enough, is you see Imran, who I had on my show, kind of spoke, not about that specifically, but I remember he said something about sometimes we need to be the ones to do it. Do you get what I mean? So, for example, you do a lot of speaking to people. You know a lot about mental health. You start percent and start talking to people. Get volunteers out there to do like support you and stuff like that. Because it's all well and good. We're saying, oh yeah, the NHS is overwhelmed. For example, I'm saying, yeah, my community they don't really open up. But I'm not doing. Obviously, yes, I'm speaking and getting to people. But I did agree with him when he said that we need to be the ones to do it and find people that will support. I'm us trying, too. mate. I'm try- I know you are I'm doing trying. it. I know, I know. But that's what I'm saying. I really do agree with it. I should be doing possibly more when I can. But you get we're only I mean? one person though. We've I know, be but I feel like. I feel like we can do much more in the community. And if we find people that have the same mindsets, for example, you and I, I feel like we possibly could have a bigger impact. Like us connecting, I feel like it's a great thing because we both have different audiences. Different people are going to listen to this because of the fact that we come from different backgrounds. Do you get what I mean? And I think that already is so important. So for us to open up this conversation, hopefully that'll encourage someone else to open up the I call it ripples. There we go. Ripple. Every episode is a ripple into that person's network. That's it. That's it. And I really agree that if at some point we're able to set that up within our different communities to talk openly about mental health and hopefully people will be willing to speak to us or whoever starts that conversation within their community, I think that'll make a big impact. I mean, it's all about if a person wants to. You can't mm-hmm. help someone doesn't want to be helped. But also, sometimes when we speak about mental health, people only think about the bad. It's also the good. Do you get what I mean? That's what my podcast so, is all about. It's spectrum. Yeah. Mental health is not mental illness. Exactly. So, yeah, sometimes talk about the positivity. So I like that you, that you asked me about the fact that, like, what's good things that you do and what's the bad things because people kind of attach they always associate mental health trauma do you get with me? mental all health the time, but or they'll say like oh she went through mental health you exactly. don't go through mental like right health right now my mental health is great yeah. at the moment everyone has I mental get in my health. car and i'm like <laughs> do you know what i mean but no that's what i'm saying like but yeah and on that note jackie cabanza thank you so much for coming on the just check in podcast and talking to me mate thank you so much for having me <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Jackie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. She is doing unbelievable work with La Grace de Francois and I'll put the platform's social media links and how you can watch all the episodes she's done so far in the show notes with more to come, I'm sure, very soon. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying please share it on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Please, guys, do give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We haven't had one in ages, so it'll really help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree and across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.